Good afternoon, my name's Dr Andrew Matheson and I'm here with the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to kick off by looking at an article. It is called Three Weeks of a Home-Based Sleep Low, Train Low Intervention Improves Functional Threshold Power in Trained Cyclists, a Feasibility Study. Uh, and the author was Bennett um, et al. And it was James Morton's group with Julian Lewis as the um, final author. So a really interesting article. Um, like a lot of the ones that we see, it wasn't the, the biggest numbers, but to be fair to them, they have made this very clear. This is this is a feasibility study. So 55 athletes, um, unblinded, uh, put on a reasonable diet where they either did not consume carbohydrates after an evening hit session until after they'd then done the next day's low intensity session or a control group that just ate um, carbohydrate afterwards. And the carbohydrate intake was six grams per kilogram. The protein intake um, was two grams per kilogram for it all. And they did sort of three weeks of build-up, then three weeks of observation. Uh, and the athletes were uh, very much more the sub-elite level, uh, average, I think, of 10 hours a week um, training, average age of 32, weight of 75 kilos, but um, plus or minus of 18 standard deviation. So quite a wide range of shapes and sizes. So um, not funnily enough, and I think I'm getting better at realising these, these articles are almost more useful than the elite articles for most of the work I do, because this is, this is my of patient cohort really and uh, certainly where I and, and lots of other masters athletes would sit comfortably within this so the, the question what they showed was that they could improve the functional threshold power uh, and they did a few other tests on there and I, I it's going to be very interesting to see where they go further with this once they've got uh, a higher number of athletes and they're doing longer uh, longer periods. Um, I think the thing I, I liked about this and I took away wasn't so much that finding. Uh, the main thing was the fact that they only, they had 55 athletes uh, split into two groups, but prior to that they had about 70 and only had 16 withdrawal, which if you the intervention must have felt pretty manageable. Um, and the way that they managed to get them to keep to the nutrient and uh, eating changes and the training changes in athletes of the average age of 32 are kind of going to be reasonably set in their, their sort of patterns of training. Uh, I, I really liked, I thought, okay, that's, uh, that's really quite interesting. Uh, certainly something where you could you could see yourself saying to an, an athlete or coaches I could see coaches saying look let's do something a little bit different this feels pretty manageable other people of similar uh, age and sort of training volumes have managed it and they've got reasonable results so yeah uh, I, I like that and we'll wait to see what the uh, what the longer study is it was published in uh, PLOS One, so again, uh, not, not a bad publication there. 
So that was the first article. The um, second thing I wanted to to move on to was uh, it's part of nutrition, but the thing that got me onto it isn't to do with nutrition. It was a uh, nature, uh, sorry, a science paper just talking about COVID vaccines and. Um, it was a very nice kind of research article talking about how they had tried to look at the immune response to the COVID vaccines. And it got me thinking, oh, I'd, I'd quite like to try and just run through uh, the immune response to exercise work that I've been meaning to do for a little while. Now, with the, the there's lots of kind of interesting similarities uh, Lots of people will re- have been reading a lot of these sort of immune memory or immunology papers from the COVID vaccines and, and maybe jumping to some slightly early conclusions and a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about actually how, how we lay down, how we make immune memories and how difficult it is actually to test for those immune memories. And so with uh, with the COVID vaccines, obviously, there's been lots of people saying oh, there's these waning antibody levels, which is completely normal. That's what we always see. Um, the question then isn't that, OK, look, that, that antibody, that immediate response will wane. But have there been memory B cells and memory T cells laying down? How effective will they be? Uh, and it's much then harder to go and go and test for those because it, they don't just just sit in in the blood. Um, so interesting article. Uh, it, for people who want to know, it was um, called "MRA Vaccines Induce Durable Immune Memory to SARS-CoV-2 and, and Variant of Concern," and they just talk about uh, how they challenged people to see whether or not those memory cells were there and how effective the memory that had been made was. But that's not what I want to talk about. Um, What I want to talk about is uh, something that's been brewing for the last few years. So if we were to jump 10 years ago, I think everyone would would agree about this idea of a... um, Sort of window period after high intensity training where people are probably a bit more susceptible to upper respiratory tract infections. Um, and as someone who, who rode a reasonably high level, did was doing training three times a day, um, did sort of uh, so GB under 23 squad, and then in the military has also done sort of reasonably high levels of what you call arduous training, arduous uh, tests or courses. I think anyone that's done high level training, that window period makes a lot of sense to you. Uh, you feel pretty terrible most of the time when you're uh, training at a high level. You, you always feel ill. Uh, you always feel like you're about to go down with something. You always feel exhausted. Uh, and like personally, one of the things I enjoyed the most about kind of stepping down my training was that actually, wow, I could walk into a gym and I didn't get that slight sick sensation that I'm too tired to do this. Actually, wow, going to the gym's great fun. I'd completely forgotten it. Um, so the, the window period, the window period, and the idea that it's of immune function dropping has always felt right. 
Um, but but like all these things that, that sort of feel right, um, it, it's we were probably oversimplifying, and it's very easy to oversimplify with immunology because it's a wonderfully rapidly changing science. It is very hard to keep up with. Um, all the changes and certainly I, I went to medical school in 1999 um, my immunology textbooks uh, didn't have toll-like receptors in them didn't have most of the innate immune system which we've since discovered in them they're, they're garbage now um, I, I remember and I realized that when I did a, I did a master's in 2012 and and redid it and didn't know anything um, but even then, since the last time I dug into it, I, I've realised if you try and keep on top of it, it's, it's changing so quickly, it's, it is hard. So, um, an easy subject to oversimplify and a very hard one to, to kind of dig down and be accurate about. Now, uh, the, the, what's been going on in the um, sort of sports immune sphere is that uh, a couple of guys from Bath just essentially said we think this idea of the window period's wrong uh, and I really recommend uh, the, the article's called Can Exercise Affect Immune Function to Increase Susceptibility to Infection and essentially it's a debate article uh, where um, mm. Professor Walsh has taken both sides of the argument and given them a chance to put forward their their points um, and then if you want to read more around it there's lots of this of original articles and original data there but this is a nice nice introduction to it uh, it was published uh, in last year 2020 uh, so first author Simpson last author Walsh and essentially what the the team from of Bath were saying is that Right, can, what's your evidence for this window period? Okay, evidence number one, that there's these drops in, in lymphocyte number. What do you mean a drop in number? You mean when you've done a blood test, you've seen a drop. What's that got to do with anything? Why have you read from a drop there that there must be a drop in the immune function? Um, T-cells when you expose the body to everything, do what they're meant to do. They go into peripheral tissue to see if they need to be fighting an infection, an assault. They are the part of the innate immune system. Do they need to be finding antigens to either destroy themselves, present up to um, B cells, etc., etc.? So actually just a drop in a blood level, saying that that shows a drop in um, the immune system, just shows a, a lack of understanding about the way that T cells work. And you think, okay, well, actually that, that does ring quite true. Um, the, then they look at the other sort of bits of data. They say, well, how about uh, sort of secretory IgA in the saliva? It's a kind of real favourite over the years of, oh, these, these people must have a, a worse immune function because their sal saliva IgA has dropped. And they essentially just point out that it's not a very good test. Um, it's... Uh, there's a lot of interathlete variability. Uh, there's a lot of change depending on other factors. And actually, most of the IgA tests haven't been careful enough to ensure um, that those confounding factors are sort of taken out. 
So again, you kind of think, oh, okay, that's, um, yeah, I've read a lot of IGA work over the years and I've never never quite felt 100% comfortable with it. And it's very interesting for someone to then come along and say, no, it's it's not good enough. I know it's a favourite, but it's it's not good enough. And then the next thing that they say was, well, what about the fact that athletes, and in this I, I can certainly agree with, athletes feel rubbish the whole time and constantly report getting ill. And what they said to that was, well, have you tested them? Are they ill or are there other things going on? Back to this idea that what else is going on in their, their bodies that might be mimicking acute infections. We know when you run, you get an irritant mucosynchus in your bowels. You might get a bit of diarrhea. doesn't mean you're picking up a gastroenteritis every time. We know people will get irritation in the upper respiratory tract. You're, it gets very irritated, especially in certain climates. That doesn't mean you get ill. It does mean that you will get some inflammation you might even get some glands up. You, you might get an immune response, which we've already talked about with the lymphocytes, but is that the same as, as starting to develop an infection? And then again, they just said, look, is, is the evidence good enough? Have all these tests, have they just been athletes reporting infections? Or have we actually gone, done PCR swabs and said, actually, look, well, here, here, here's some virus. Um, here's a virus which we know caused infections and we know wasn't there, there before. Um, and again, that, that one's a hard one to argue with. And then the, the final bit that they point out is, well, what do athletes do and how do you control for these aspects of the athlete's life? The fact that often they might not be eating the best of food, especially if they're traveling and with a team. They're constantly living in a close environment with people closer than other people know. And, and all of us know now, um, I'm sure we've sort of seen that the impact that just simple hand hygiene measures can can have within a sort of a sports team from the COVID stuff. We've all seen um, the, the impact of avoiding other people drop uh, sort of seasonal coughs and colds right down. If that that would that gives us an idea the impact that, how impactful that kind of the COVID measures have been on seasonal flus gives you an idea of how much of an effect being around athletes and teammates and all touching the same equipment um, living out of each other's pockets must be on spreading infections. So it's the environment they're in that might make them more likely to pick up infections rather than an immune response to the training they're doing. So lots of really interesting things. They are pushing against uh, a lot of uh, very sort of standardized and well understood work uh, and it'll be fascinating to see where where things go from here i suppose the the things that i suppose might hold the key in my head is in and there's a bit of a segue here so the first one is this idea that we're starting to understand a bit more about reds and its impact on the immune system as well as the kind of impact of being around other athletes, the type of food you're having, the travel you're doing, your sleep deprivation, all of which we know impact your infection risk. What about 
the way you're fueling yourself. And now we're starting to sort of be, all be very comfortable agreeing that an impact of reds is the, the fact that if you're not getting enough uh, nutrition and uh, calorie intake in, for the training volume you're doing, your body's going to start dialing down on a few different areas, whether that your menstrual function, your bone health, your immune system. Um, so how can you control for that when you're looking at athletes' infection rates? Um, lots of other little bits that we can, we can touch on as well. Where are the athletes? What's their vitamin D levels? What time of year is it? Uh, and, and again, the thing, the thing which definitely agree with, with the, the, these guys from Bath and in just, I mean, it's very, make, like any great idea, it makes you stop and think how on earth has no one thought of this before is, is how on earth do you control for so many confounding factors when you're looking at athletes? And, uh, certainly in the in the um, article I've mentioned where they kind of debate each other there's there's certainly no paper where that the, the kind of the uh, they're able to push back against the bath guys and say look this one has controlled for all those confounding factors and still shows higher infection proven infection rates um, so yeah an understanding of reds I'm sure will help us the other thing I think that will help us was is this idea of this sort of omics and metabolomics and for a lot of uh, kind of sort of sports uh, physiology and biochemistry and immunology, um, it's it's been a case of taking one variable and measuring it. We're going to measure this blood test. And we're going to see what happens, but that's changing um, and. Omics is changing what we're capable of doing. Actually, we, rather than um, just measure one single variable, so, okay, uh, I'm going to look at uh, that one fish in the pond. We can, uh, so, sort of throwing out with the line, catching one fish, and then trying to guess from that fish how many fish are in that pond, which, okay, if I catch it quickly, I, I might get an idea. But omics is just throwing out, and rather than just looking for testing for one fish, it's throwing out a big net and just pulling up all the fish and then looking at them and saying, well, now I know exactly how many fish are in the pond because they're all in my net. The problem with that is you need a very big net and it's very difficult to count the fish because there's so many. Uh, and that's, I suppose, the segue into another really nice article um, I enjoyed this week. It was in Frontiers in Nutrition by uh, David Neiman. It's called Multiomics Approach to Precision Sports Nutrition, Limits, Challenges and Possibilities. And it just runs through a few of the issues of omics at the moment and a little bit of a kind of warning shot saying, look, don't get um, sold snake oil. It's early days for, for lots of this stuff. But my goodness, some of it's exciting. Um, so... Uh, they, do, they do a nice little uh, of introduction, t touching interestingly enough on the obesity genetics and the history of that and, and how we've all had our fingers slightly burnt with that, where we were like, oh, we're going to find out the obesity gene. It turns out 
sort of 15 years of hard work, there's a lot of obesity genes uh, and they're all really complicated and they all interact in different ways with, with the human body. And unfortunately, whilst there's one or two that clearly cause genetic obesity, the rest is just this mismatch of complex problems and interactions and there's no one test we can give you and no one uh, therapy we can give you to, to help with it. So, and, and they also touch on the caffeine thing again, this uh, not too long ago, there was all this, okay, ah, we finally figured out why some of the caffeine studies never look that good because uh, there's this cytochrome P450, 1-alpha-2 gene, um, and some people are sort of fast, slow, and, and non-metabolizers uh, of caffeine. Um, and it, whilst it's been very interesting, and certainly makes us understand a lot more about why some of the caffeine works studies aren't uh, as clear as they should be um, it's still more complicated than that and we keep finding more and more kind of polymorphisms that also have an effect um, so the one that they do at the end which is a nice summary of where we could be going which i hadn't really read about before was it was to do with the uh, polyphenols and what they were saying was that we're always worried that some of the uh, tests on polyphenols had never been quite as satisfying as we had hoped. Uh, they, they should be more effective than they seem to be in some of the studies that had, had been done and some of the um, sort of uh, studies where we're just using the fishing rod looking at these single variables. Um, and they were sort of commenting on a recent study on some, some cyclist post-time trial where that using a multi-omics method and throwing out this, this wide net, actually they'd, they'd found how effective this was and it, the picture had been much clearer. Now, the problem with omics, uh, and it's a bit like the problem with the microbiome work, is that Again, all of a sudden you find biochemistry and sports nutrition papers with a load of mathematicians mentioned on them. There's a lot of data to work through and it's not simple data to work through. And the, the limiting factor is, yes, we, we've now got these amazing methods for testing huge numbers of variables, but how do we break the data down? And in the way we do it is to, to increase the kind of data sets we can match these up to almost like using using sort of fingerprint models rather than to make kind of individual sense but say this wide pattern of kind of changes link is is i've seen that before it's this thing going on but that takes a lot of time um sort of 10 years down down the line with the microbiome work they're still very much scratching at the surface of being able to say the these are what these different fingerprint type patterns mean uh, and i think it's probably going to be a similar picture for for the omics in uh, sports nutrition but exciting times so uh two really interesting areas and uh areas where we just have to be patient um, and hopefully they will, uh, someone, someone soon will come and tell us all the answers. Uh, until that point, we're, uh, we're left trying to explain to our patients and our athletes why, despite uh, the adverts promising otherwise, that I, we can't just do a test to tell them exactly how they, they will respond to all these different things. 
I hope you uh, have a super new year. Um, thanks very much for your time. Goodbye.